0: chapter 1 the sacrament of the assembly when you assemble as a church 1 corinthians 11:18 1 when you assemble as a church writes the apostle paul to the corinthians for him as for all of early christianity these words referred not to a temple but to the nature and purpose of the gathering as is well known the very word church ecclesia means a gathering or an assembly, and to assemble as a church meant, in the minds of the early Christians, to constitute a gathering whose purpose is to reveal, to realize, the church. This gathering is Eucharistic. Its end and fulfillment lies in its being the setting wherein the Lord's Supper is accomplished, wherein the Eucharistic breaking of bread takes place. In the same epistle, St. Paul approaches the Corinthians for partaking of a meal other than the Lord's Supper in their gathering, or assembling for a purpose other than the Eucharistic breaking of bread. Thus, from the very beginning, we can see an obvious, undoubted triunity of the assembly, the Eucharist and the Church, to which the whole early tradition of the Church, following St. Paul, unanimously testifies. The fundamental task for liturgical theology consists, therefore, in uncovering the meaning and essence of this unity. This task is all the more urgent in that, while this triunity was self-evident to the early Church, it has ceased to be self-evident to the consciousness of contemporary Christianity, what we customarily call school theology, which arose after the break with patristic tradition, and chiefly from a Western understanding of both the method and the very nature of theology, generally ignores the bond between the assembly, the Eucharist, and the Church. The Eucharist is regarded and defined as one of the sacraments, but not as the sacrament of the assembly, as it was defined by the 5th century author of the Areopagotica, It would be no exaggeration to say that this scholastic dogmatics is simply unaware of the ecclesiological meaning of the Eucharist, and at the same time it has forgotten the Eucharistic dimension of ecclesiology, in other words, the doctrine of the Church. We shall speak in greater detail of this divorce between theology and the Eucharist and its tragic consequences for the Church consciousness. For now we should note that the idea of the Eucharist as the sacrament of the assembly gradually disappeared from piety as well. The liturgic's textbooks do categorize the Eucharist under public worship, and state that the liturgy is normally served in the presence of a congregation of worshippers, but this congregation of worshippers, in other words the assembly, has ceased to be apprehended as the primary form of the Eucharist, and liturgic's has ceased to look to the Eucharist to both see and feel the primary form of the Church. Liturgical piety has become thoroughly individualistic, and the most eloquent testimony to this is the contemporary practice of receiving communion, which is completely subordinated to the spiritual needs of the individual believer. No one, neither among the clergy nor the laity, apprehends it in the spirit of the Eucharistic prayer itself, and unite all of us to one another who become partakers of one bread and cup in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Thus, we have witnessed in both piety and churchliness a gradual distinct reduction of the Eucharist, a narrowing of its primary and original meaning and place in the life of the Church. Consequently, any explanation of the Eucharist in liturgical theology must begin by surmounting this reduction, by returning to the original understanding of the Eucharist as the sacrament of the assembly, and hence the sacrament of the Church. At this point we need to indicate that both reductions of the Eucharist, in piety and in theology, openly contradict the very ordo of the Eucharist as it was preserved by the Church from the very beginning. By ordo we mean here not the various details of the rites and sacraments, which obviously underwent development and change and grew in complexity, but rather the fundamental structure of the Eucharist, its shape, to use the expression of Dom Gregory Dix, who can be traced back to the fundamental apostolic principle of Christian worship. As I have already pointed out elsewhere, the basic defect of the school theology consists in that, in its treatment of the sacraments, it proceeds not from the living experience of the Church, not from the concrete liturgical tradition that has been preserved by the Church, but from its own a priori and abstract categories and definitions which hardly conformed to the reality of the church life. In early times the church knew full well that the lex credendi, or rule of faith, and the lex orandi, rule of prayer, were inseparable, and that they mutually substantiated each other, that, that, in the words of St. Irenaeus, our teaching is in harmony with the Eucharist, and the Eucharist confirms our teaching." But theology constructed on Western scholastic models is completely uninterested in worship as it is performed by the Church and in the logic and order proper to it. Proceeding from its own abstract presuppositions, this theology decides a priori what is important and what is secondary, and it turns out, in the final analysis, that what is deemed secondary, as having no theological interest, is precisely worship itself the very activity by which the Church actually lives in all its complexity and diversity. The theologian directs his entire attention to the important moments that he artificially singles out. In the Eucharist, the moment of the change of the holy gifts, and then the partaking of communion, in baptism, the triple immersion, in marriage, the consecratory formula, crown them with glory and honor, etc., It has never occurred to the theologian who thinks in these categories that the importance of these moments cannot be isolated from their liturgical context. This is the root of the striking poverty and one-sidedness of the explanations of and the very approach to the sacraments that we find in our school dogmatics. It is also the root of the narrowness and one-sidedness in our liturgical piety. For not being nourished and directed, as in the time of the Fathers, by a liturgical catechesis, a genuine theological explanation, it falls prey to all manner of symbolic and allegorical interpretations of the services, a peculiar liturgical folklore. And therefore, as we have already stated, the first principle of liturgical theology is that, in explaining the liturgical tradition of the Church, one must proceed not from abstract purely intellectual schemata cast randomly over the services, but from the services themselves, and this means, first of all, from their ordo. 2. Any serious study of the Eucharistic ordo cannot but convince us that this ordo is entirely, from beginning to end, constructed on the principle of correlation, the mutual dependence of the celebrant of the service and the people. One may even more precisely define this bond as a co-serving or a concelebration, as it was articulated by the late Professor Nicholas Offensive in his splendid, though not yet fully appreciated, work, The Lord's Supper. This idea, however, plays no role whatsoever in school theology, and the liturgical piety engineered by it, and is for all practical purposes denied. The word, con is applied only to the clergy taking part in the service, while the participation of the laity is conceived of as entirely passive. For a good example of this, we need only consider the prayers during the Divine Liturgy, which are included in several prayer books intended expressly for the laity. Their compilers apparently considered it self-evident that the Eucharistic prayers themselves exist solely for the benefit of the clergy. What is even sadder, the ecclesiastical censors who for decades approved these special prayers obviously held the same opinion. When enumerating the necessary conditions for celebrating the liturgy, even the most literate and trustworthy liturgics textbooks, such as Archimandrite Cyprian Kern's the Eucharist, usually mention everything, from a canonically ordained priest, right down to the quality of the wine, except the assembly as the church, which is evidently not considered a condition of the liturgy. Meanwhile, all early evidence we possess points to the fact that the gathering or assembly was already considered the first and basic act of the Eucharist. This is also attested to by the ancient liturgical designation of the person who performs the Eucharist, the presider, whose primary function was to stand at the head of the assembly as the President of the Brethren. Thus the assembly is the first liturgical act of the Eucharist, its foundation and beginning. In the early Christian period, in contrast to the current practice, the gathering of the people preceded the entrance of the celebrant. The Church, writes St. John Chrysostom, is a house common to us all, and you are awaiting us when we enter. That is why, immediately afterward, we greet you by giving the peace. Further on, when we discuss the so-called little entrance, we shall speak in greater detail about the place and meaning of the entrance in the Eucharistic Ordo. A few words, however, are in order here about our present practice, in which the entire beginning of the liturgy, the entrance of the celebrants, the vesting, the washing of hands, and, finally, the preparation of the gifts— not only has become private, concerning only the clergy, but also isolated, transferred into a special office of the liturgy, with its own dismissal. Although this practice has been formally legitimized in our service-books, it should be examined in the light of another practice, which is more ancient, though still preserved to this day. This is the pontifical celebration of the Eucharist, when the liturgy is performed by a bishop, The people gather in the church first, and are already there to greet him when he enters. The vesting takes place amidst the congregation. The bishop does not proceed to the altar until the little entrance and, finally the prothesis is, as it were, repeated just before the offertory, in other words, what we now term the great entrance. It would be wrong to suppose that all this arose as the result of a special solemnity being attached to the pontifical service which we sometimes hear in the protests of proponents of a primitive Christian simplicity. On the contrary, not in all details, of course, but on the whole, the pontifical service goes much further in preserving the form and spirit of the early Eucharistic practice, because in the early Church it was precisely the bishop who customarily presided over the Eucharistic assembly. Only much later, with the gradual transformation of the local church community into an administrative district, diocese, broken up into a multitude of parishes, was the position of the priest converted from that of an extraordinary celebrant of the Eucharist, as the deputy of the bishop, into that of the ordinary celebrant. From the point of view of liturgical theology, it is precisely the pontifical order of the entrance into the assembly that must be considered normative, the priestly order, which arose out of expediency, was perhaps practical and inevitable, but to no extent does it do away with the significance of the assembly as the church as, in actuality, the principle, the first and basic act of the Eucharist. 3. The correlation between the celebrant and the people, their concelebration, finds further expression in the Eucharistic prayers, which are all, without exception, structured as dialogues. Every prayer is sealed by the gathering with one of the key words of Christian fellowship, Amen, thus binding the celebrant and the people of God at whose head he stands into one organic whole. Every prayer, with the exception of the prayer of the priest for himself, read during the Cherubic Hymn, which we shall discuss in due time, is spoken on behalf of us. All of the constituent parts of the solemn Eucharistic ceremony, the reading of the Word of God, the anaphora, the partaking of communion, begin with the exchange of peace. Peace be to all, and to your spirit. Finally, all of these prayers have as their content our praise, our repentance. Our thanksgiving, our communion. Unite all of us to one another who become partakers in the communion of the Holy Spirit. The same may be said of the individual rites of the Eucharist. All express to some degree not only the unity of the celebrant and the people, but also their synergy, collaboration, concelebration in the literal sense of these terms. Thus, the reading of the Word of God and its elaboration in the sermon, which, according to the unanimous testimony of all early evidence, comprises the first part of the Eucharistic celebration, self-evidently presuppose listeners, people who receive the preaching. The transferal of the proskimity to the sanctuary, and the appearance of a special table of oblation, for it did not erase the original practice of offering the gifts in the assembly from the people, which is accomplished nowadays in the great entrance. Finally, the kiss of peace, though now performed only among the clergy, is accompanied by the exclamation, Let us love one another, and thus relates to the entire gathering, as does the concluding exclamation, Let us depart in peace. What has been said thus far merits attention all the more in that the Byzantine rite of the liturgy gradually and systematically developed in the direction of an ever greater separation of the laity from the clergy, those who pray from those who serve. As we endeavored to show elsewhere, and as was brilliantly elaborated by Professor Afanasiyev. Byzantine liturgical piety gradually fell under the grip of a mysteriological perception of worship, which was constructed on the contraposition of the initiated and the uninitiated. But this influence proved to be too feeble at its very root to alter the original order of the Eucharist, for each word and each act continues to express the concelebration of all with each other with everyone in his proper place and proper ministry in the single liturgia of the Church. It is quite another matter that the primary, direct, and immediate meaning of these words and acts ceased to penetrate the consciousness of both clergy and laity, and that in their minds there arose instead a peculiar dichotomy between the data of theology and its interpretation. As a result of this dichotomy— All manner of symbolic explanations for the most simple words and acts appeared and spread like weeds, while their direct, literal meaning was often hardly considered. We have already spoken, and will speak again about the causes and consequences of this new nominalistic liturgical piety which, unfortunately, reigns almost unchallenged in the Church. For now, it is important only to emphasize that this new piety succeeded neither in eclipsing nor distorting beyond recognition the actual communal character of the Eucharist, which could never be torn away from the Church and, consequently, from the Assembly. Even the most obvious, and in all likelihood the saddest result of this new piety, the excommunication for all practical purposes of the laity— for whom the partaking of communion, having ceased to have its source in their participation in the liturgy, became something exceptional, amounts to nothing before the direct testimony of the Eucharistic order itself, all of us who became partakers of the one bread and cup, in the fear of God and with faith draw near, etc. All these texts, appeals, and words undoubtedly concerned the entire assembly, and not certain separate or isolated participants in it. As Professor Afanasyev so aptly put it, if we discarded everything that was brought into our liturgical life, especially in the last few centuries, we would find no particularly significant divergence between what would be left and the early practice of the Church. The basic defect of our liturgical life consists in that we impart greater significance to the particularities, fortuitous or not, of our liturgical offices than to their essence. The fundamental principles of doctrine concerning the Eucharist are perfectly clear in the services. In them, the nature of the Eucharist is preserved unsullied. Our task, therefore, consists not so much in making various changes in our liturgical life, but rather in coming to realize the genuine nature of the Eucharist. 4. Finally, this same idea of assembly and concelebration is expressed and embodied in the very physical setting in which the Eucharist is accomplished—the temple. The liturgics textbook deal at great length with the church building, its layout or plan, and the symbolic meaning of its various details. Their definitions and descriptions, however, contain virtually no mention of the self-evident link between the Christian temple and the assembly the conciliar or subornal character of the Eucharist. There is no need to repeat here what we have already said elsewhere about the complex development of the church building and temple piety in the Orthodox East. It is enough to recall that the original Christian temple was above all the Domus Ecclesiae, the site of the gathering of the church together and the Eucharistic breaking of bread. And in this subordination to the idea of the assembly lies both the newness of the Christian temple and the principle of its development. Whatever were the complexities of this development, whatever was the impact of what we have earlier termed mysteriological piety, it is precisely the idea of the Eucharistic assembly that proved to be its unifying and guiding factor. Just as in the earliest Christian era, So also today, in its best Byzantine or Russian incarnation, the temple is experienced and perceived as Sobor, as the gathering together of heaven and earth and all creation in Christ, which constitutes the essence and purpose of the church. The form of the church building and its iconography also attest to this. The form, the temple as organization of space, essentially expresses the same correlation the same dialogic structure that, as we have seen, is the determining factor in the order of the Eucharistic assembly. Here it is a correlation between the altar and the sanctuary, on the one hand, and the ark or nave, the place of the assembly, on the other. The nave is directed toward the altar, in which we find its end and purpose, but the altar necessarily entails the nave and exists only in relation to it. While it is true that contemporary liturgical piety perceives the sanctuary as something self-contained and accessible only to the initiated, a particularly holy place with its own brand of sanctity as if to emphasize the profane category to which the laity standing outside it belong, it is also not difficult to show that this perception is relatively recent, false, and most importantly profoundly harmful to the church. It serves only to continually nourish that clericalism, so utterly alien to orthodoxy, that reduces the laity to the status of second-class citizen, defined primarily in negative terms as those who do not have the right to enter certain places, to touch certain things, or to take part in certain activities. And because of this there has, alas, arisen among us the type of priest who sees virtually the essence of his priesthood in the underlying defense of the holy things from contact with the laity, and who finds a peculiar, almost voluptuous gratification in this defense. But let us repeat once more, such a perception of the altar is not the original one and is false. It owes much, of course, to the corresponding understanding of the iconostasis as primarily a wall that separates the altar from the laity and places an impassable barrier between them. Yet, as strange as it may seem to the majority of Orthodox today, the iconostasis originated from a completely opposite purpose, not to separate but to unite. The icon is a witness, or better still, a consequence of the unification of the divine and the human, of heaven and earth, that has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. All icons are, in essence, icons of the Incarnation. Thus, the iconostasis originated from the experience of the temple as heaven on earth, as testimony to the fact that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, like all the rest of the iconography in the church building. It is an incarnation of the vision of the Church as Sobor, as the union of the visible and invisible worlds, as the manifestation and presence of the new and transfigured creation. What is tragic is that the authentic tradition of Orthodox iconography experienced a prolonged process of alienation, in which the perception of the correlation between the icons and the temple disappeared almost entirely from Church consciousness— Our churches today are no longer painted over with icons, either we hang a large number of icons that often have no relation whatsoever to the temple as a whole, or we decorate the church with all sorts of ornaments, and not only do the details invariably predominate over the whole, but the icon itself becomes a detail in some decorative ensemble. Another aspect of this same tragedy is the gradual degeneration first of the form and then of the meaning of the iconostasis. From an ordo, a framework or harmonic system of icons which naturally required a standing support, it was transformed into a wall adorned with icons, in other words, the opposite of its original function. At first, the icons demanded a wall form, but now the wall demands the icons and in this manner inherently subordinates them to itself. One can only hope that the interest that is awakening everywhere in iconography, which embraces both the understanding of icons and the iconographic art itself, will bring about a rebirth of the genuine significance of the iconostasis to the church building, as well as a return to the experience that we sense in a number of ancient churches. The icons seem to take part in the assembly of the church, they express its meaning, they provide its eternal movement and rhythm. The entire church, the entire assembly, with all the ranks—prophets, apostles, martyrs, and saints—seem to ascend to heaven, elevated and lifted up by Christ to his table in his kingdom. We must point out here that this new attitude toward the sanctuary and toward the iconostasis as entailing a division is also false in that it obviously contradicts the church's liturgical tradition itself. This tradition knows only the consecration of a temple and an altar table, and does not know any consecration of a sanctuary separate from the nave. Like the altar table, the entire temple is anointed with the holy chrism. The whole church is thus sealed as a sanctuary, a holy place. We see this clearly in the complex truly Byzantine office of the consecration of a temple, when the relics are about to be brought in and placed inside the altar-table. It is not at the royal doors of the sanctuary, but at the outside doors of the church that the celebrant exclaims, Receive your princes, O ye gates! Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts! He is the King of glory! In expounding on this rite, Simeon of Thessalonica himself, one of the most eminent representatives of the symbolical and mysteriological interpretation of the services, writes, The martyrs, in the form of the holy relics, and the hierarch himself represents Christ, and the church represents heaven. The bishop reads the prayer of the entrance, summoning the concelebrants and the accompanying angels, then pointing to the doors of the temple and opening them, the celebrants enter the temple as in heaven, the witnesses of Jesus Christ through their majestic Father at the time of the opening for us of the heavenly abode. It is quite clear, as a great number of other documents confirm, that this rite developed in a period when the royal doors referred not to the doors of the sanctuary, but to the doors of the church itself, when the temple itself was experienced and perceived as heaven on earth as the place in which, through the Eucharistic assembly of the Church, the Lord enters, the doors being shut, and with Him and in Him enters His kingdom. We shall speak more fully about the meaning of the altar in the Eucharist in connection with the so-called little entrance. For now it is sufficient to stress not only the fundamental connection between the temple and the assembly, but also the meaning of the temple itself as precisely, sobor, as the assembly as Church, incarnate, in architectural forms, colors, and images. 5. The liturgy is the sacrament of the assembly. Christ came to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad, John 11.52, and from the very beginning the Eucharist was a manifestation and realization of the unity of the new people of God, gathered by Christ and in the Church. We need to be thoroughly aware that we come to the temple not for individual prayer, but to assemble together as the church, and the visible temple itself signifies and is but an image of the temple not made by hands. Therefore, the assembly as the church is in reality the first liturgical act, the foundation of the entire liturgy, and unless one understands this, one cannot understand the rest of the celebration. When I say that I am going to church, it means I am going into the assembly of the faithful in order, together with them, to constitute the church, in order to be what I became on the day of my baptism, a member in the fullest, absolute meaning of the term of the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it, says the Apostle, 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven. I go to manifest and realize my membership to manifest and witness before God and the world the mystery of the kingdom of God, which already has come in power. It has come and is coming in power in the church. This is the mystery of the church, the mystery of the body of Christ, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Matthew 18.20 The miracle of the church assembly lies in that it is not the sum of the sinful and unworthy people who comprise it, but the body of Christ. How often do we say we are going to church to obtain help, strength, or consolation? We forget, meanwhile, that we are the church. We make it up that Christ abides in his members, and that the church does not exist outside us or above us, but we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. Christianity consists not in bestowing on each the possibility of personal perfection, but first of all in calling and commanding Christians to be the Church, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, 1 Peter nine, to manifest and confess the presence of Christ and His kingdom in the world. And the holiness of the Church is not our holiness, but Christ's, who loved the Church and gave Himself for her, that he might sanctify her, that she might be holy and without blemish, Ephesians five twenty five 27 Likewise, the holiness of the saints as well is but the revelation and realization of that sanctification, that holiness that each of us received on the day of baptism, and in which we are called to increase, but we could not grow in it if we did not already possess it as a gift of God, as his presence in us through the Holy Spirit. This is why, in the early times, all Christians were called saints. That is why, assembling as the Church is our task, our chief trust and duty. We have been consecrated to this task, and it will remain with us until such time as we cut ourselves off from it. In antiquity, those who did not take part in the Eucharistic assembly without due cause excommunicated themselves from the Church, since they had severed themselves from the organic unity of the body of Christ, which is manifested in the liturgy. The Eucharist, we repeat, is not one of the sacraments, or one of the services, but the very manifestation and fulfillment of the Church in all her power, sanctity, and fullness. Only by taking part in it can we increase in holiness, and fulfill all that we have been commanded to be and do. The church, gathered in the Eucharist, even when limited to two or three, is the image and realization of the body of Christ, and only those who are gathered will be able to partake, in other words, be communicants of the body and blood of Christ, because they manifest him by their very assembly. No one could ever partake, no one could ever be of proper and sufficient holiness for this, unless it were given and commanded in the church, in the assembly, in that mystical unity in which we, who constitute the body of Christ, are able to blamelessly call God Father and be partakers and communicants of the divine life. It should now be obvious to what degree our contemporary individual entries into the temple at any moment during the service violate the essence of the Eucharist. One who maintains his individuality and freedom in some manner does not know, has not discovered the mystery of the church. He does not take part in the sacrament of the assembly, in this miracle of the reunification of the splintered and sinful human nature in the divine human unity of Jesus Christ. 6. Finally, if the assembly as the church is the image of the body of Christ— then the image of the head of the body is the priest. He presides over, he heads the gathering, and his standing at their head is precisely what makes a group of Christians the gathering of the church in the fullness of her gifts. If according to his humanity the priest is only one, and perhaps the most sinful and unworthy, of those assembled, then by the gift of the Holy Spirit which has been preserved by the church since Pentecost and handed down without interruption through the laying on of hands of the bishop, he manifests the power of the priesthood of Christ, who consecrated himself for us, and who is the one priest of the New Testament. And he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Hebrews 7.24 Just as the holiness of the assembly is not that of the people who constitute it, but Christ's, So the priesthood of the priest is not his but Christ's, bestowed on the church because she is his body. Christ is not outside the church, and neither his power nor his authority is delegated to anyone. He himself abides in the church, and through the Holy Spirit he fulfills her entire life. The priest is neither a representative nor a deputy of Christ. In the sacrament he is Christ himself, just as the assembly is his body. Standing at the head of the body, he manifests in himself the unity of the Church, the oneness of the unity of all her members within himself. Thus in this unity of celebrant and the assembled is manifested the divine human unity of the Church, in Christ and with Christ. The vesting of the priest, even if it is done today before the liturgy, likewise is linked with the assembly, for it is an image, an icon, of the unity of Christ and the Church, of the indissoluble unity of the many who constitute the One. The white garment, or podryznik or stakarion, is first of all the same white baptismal robe that each of us received at baptism. It is the garment of all the baptized, the garment of the Church herself, and in putting it on the priest manifests the oneness of the assembly, uniting all of us with himself. The epitrachelion or stole, is the image of the Saviour's taking on of our nature for its salvation and theosis, a sign of the priesthood of Christ himself. Such is also the case with the epimanikia or the cuffs. The priest's hands, with which he blesses and performs the service, are no longer his own, but the hands of Christ. The belt, or girdle, has always been a sign of obedience, preparedness, brotherhood, and service. The priest does not take himself to the high places on his own authority. He is not greater than his master. Rather, he is sent to this ministry by his master, whom he follows and by whose grace he serves. Finally, the Philonian or that is, the chasuble, represents the glory of the church as the new creation, the joy, truth, and beauty of the new life, the prefiguration of the kingdom of God, and the king who forever reigns, He is robed in majesty. Psalm 93.1 The vesting concludes with the washing of the celebrant's hands. The Eucharist is for those whose sins have been forgiven, who have abandoned lawlessness, who have been reconciled with God. It is the service of the new humanity, who once had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. 1 Peter 2.10 We go to the temple, we assemble as the church, We are clothed in the garments of the new creation. These are the first rites of the sacrament of sacraments, the Most Holy Eucharist.